Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. One. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the 26th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that may be quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I am humbled by my guest today, how she is using her voice, blazing new trails, and being the change she wants to see in the world. She has the right and left brain combo, holding Bachelor of Science degrees in physics and mathematics, a Master's of Science in mathematics, Master's of Fine Arts with distinction, and a PhD in mathematics. She spent six years in London and New Zealand doing math research, developing an international reputation as a leader in her field. Along with research interests, including matroid theory and biomath, which we'll hear more about, she writes in a genre known as exper experimental fiction and has published two books, an adoring mom to two preschoolers and fan along with her husband of Ultimate Frisbee. I am excited to welcome Assistant Professor of Mathematics at the U.S. Naval Academy, Carolyn Chun. Carolyn, thank you for joining me on Our Voices. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I really admire the spaces that you create for these discussions. Well, I appreciate really you. Yeah, I appreciate you. You are a bright light. And, you know, for, for folks, just so they know, I, I read an article about you. And so I read an article, and I reached out to you and we, we chatted a bit over time and that led us to, uh, to coming together here. So I consider it a real privilege. Um, I love, and I loved math too, but I'm not, not, not anywhere at the level that you are, <laughs> but I, I love that you're literally a math brainiac and and creative writer. That's such a cool combo. Um, you shared with me, you grew up generally quite sheltered. Uh, you called it a mix of privilege, potential, and naivete with its benefits. So before we get to present day, you know, please give listeners a peek into what it was like growing up as you. Well, I, um, I grew up in New Jersey in a really rural area called White House Station. Um, I was at the end of a long driveway um, on a road that had, I mean, just didn't have a lot of houses on it. And down the street was a llama farm. You could hear the llamas at night bleeding. If that's, I'm not even really sure what sound llamas make, but that's what they sounded like to me. It sounded like they were bleeding, um, bleating. Uh, I had a twin sister who was my sort of biggest competitor um, and, and best friend growing up. She grew up to be a math professor, Deb Chen. She's at uh, West Virginia Tech um, with her husband, who's also a mathematician. My two little brothers, um, they were good sources of amusement and <laughs> torment also growing up. We grew up playing board games. And I think that really we're all pretty introverted. 
Um, and so my nuclear family was a place that sort of made more sense than the things going on like at school and outside of the house. Um, I just remember I said that being a mix of privilege, potential naivete, because I was, I mean, I was young for my grade. I have a, a November birthday. Um, but not only that, I, I think I generally just lived in my head so much that I, that I, I mean, I was sheltered, but then I also sheltered myself by just um, living in my head and not really understanding what was going on. I knew I, I was a competitive person. I loved winning at board games and I had my twin sister, Deb and I both took an early interest in math. And so we were always trying to compete at math. Um, we, we were on a math team in middle school called Math Counts. Um, and we were, we'd compete at that and in math class um, to see who could be the nerdiest <laughs> math person, even at a young age. Um, and because of sort of this competitive side, um, like I wanted sort of rules for things so that success would be really clear. And at a young age, I knew that there were sort of competitions, there were things happening socially around me um, that I just didn't really understand. So I didn't really like it, I think. I think I didn't really like um, some of the social aspects of school because it just wasn't, it didn't really make sense to me. Um, the social sciences never made as much sense to me as really just the math, the math and science classes. Um, so it was a really fun childhood uh, with, a, with a loving family. My parents both worked. They're both professional mathematicians. They're actuaries. Um, so they do statistics and insurance companies, um, that sort of thing. Um, but it was, yeah, I would say it was pretty sheltered childhood. Um, and by the time I was ready to go to college, I think I knew that people were ahead of me and knowing what they wanted to do and who they wanted to be. And I was more still figuring that stuff all out. Did you, um, when you think about being in class, did you feel, you know, what was the feeling? Did you feel isolated? Did you feel like you were just, um, you know, kind of wallflower on the side? I, I am curious, cause it sounds like you were in your own head. So, I mean, yeah, I would say probably the wallflower aspect. I was exactly the kind of student that I don't want to have in my class because I wouldn't answer questions voluntarily. I find it, um, I have found it tricky to switch between listening and um, talking. So when I'm listening to a presentation um, about some historical event and trying to take it in and, and understand it and um, memorize some aspects of it. Um, and then a question is asked, even if I know the answer, I still don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to contribute to a class. Um, and it was, uh, there probably were some class issues, like some class distinctions um, there and race, racial distinctions for sure as a mixed race um, as a mixed race person, it was a white dominated school. Um, and just even as at a young age, I remember there was, and now I would call it like a racial epithet um, that one of the kids 
had for me and my twin sister that I didn't really understand at the time. But so I, I don't know which came first, sort of feeling like the people around me are different from me or feeling like I, I have no awareness of the people around me um, because I'm just obsessed with um, math or trying to win at something. Culturally, how do you identify? So now I would say my dad is, um, his ethnicity is half Chinese and half Japanese, well, a quarter Japanese, a quarter Caucasian, um, and my mom is Caucasian. So I really, I grew up sort of unaware of, of my race. Uh, at one point after um, the shootings in Atlanta last year, um, in April, um, where I think it was eight um, Asian American women were shot. Um, and it was at a time where there was, there were higher levels of um, anti-Asian sentiment and anti-Asian uh, feeling. Um, and one of my mom's friends asked her, oh, did you ever experience any any effects of this anti-Asian sentiment? Um, and there was, and she she said to her friend, well, I don't know any Asian Americans. <laughs> and it, and I'm, and that makes, and she was like, oh wait, no, I'm married to one and my kids are all <laughs> um, Asian, you know, of Asian American descent. Um, so there's a sense in which I, um, I'm still coming to terms with, you know, like, I feel that the world sees me as uh, an Asian American. Um, and so I, I identify as being mixed race, being uh, part Chinese and part white. Um, although it's, it's all sort of new for me, but it is, it's become more and more clear to me how that I, how I am perceived is a big part of my day-to-day -day experience. Um, and it's a, it's a part of how I'm being judged and how I can be successful. You know, this is the game that I always want to play, like how to optimize my success. Um, and so being aware of how I'm perceived and the extra obstacles that that will bring and the, you know, the extra advantages that that will bring. Um, I'm still trying to sort of come to terms with that. But a big part of me is also sort of like, there's other things I want to do and think about, you know, I want to think about Matroid theory. I want to work on my next screenplay. Um, so sort of navigating how I'm perceived and how I perceive myself, it's, it's clearly important, <laughs> but um, I would say I'm not totally there yet. Well, brava for just having the, and obviously you intellectually, you can work with your brain, just having these thoughts and, and processing them. And it's part of your journey. And I think I do, you know, the Asian, uh, anti-Asian sentiments, I think have landed very differently. I've had a lot of conversations with Asian friends and it's, it really, there's just a lot and there's no, they're there. There's no one answer. It's not science, you know, is a, a set solution. And um, so right. I appreciate your, your, you're vocalizing it right now for us. And as, and it's part of your coming to be and growing and, um, appreciating yourself. And I liked how you called out, yeah, you know, there's extra obstacles that maybe be there and there are maybe advantages. And I think there's no mm -hmm. reason to judge it. It's just helpful to, to get in good relationship with it. Um, your, 
this whole math thing is so crazy. So this advanced degree thing, cause you just were in school and like, I just, I'm like, I'm just kind of amazed that you can even remember all the degrees that you have. Was that a natural for you? And for those of us who are not the math genius, the, the Matroid theory, how did you kind of figure out where in the math space you really wanted to focus? Math was a natural and a given for me. Um, and I don't know if it's a nature or a nurture thing. It, in my family, if you would have brought home a report card that had a B in mathematics, <laughs> it's not that it's not that my parents would have disowned you, but they certainly there would be some teasing and some chiding, and because we're all competitive, and to bring home a B in mathematics, I mean, bringing home a B in history. Um, that can sort of slide, but a B in mathematics, that really, <laughs> are you related to us? You know, are you sure? Um, so it wasn't really an option to be unsuccessful because <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even an option to sort of be average at math, like to be exceptional at math or, or bust, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. in my family, but we all really loved math and we loved, I mean, I played bridge. It's a card game where you, um, there's a lot of strategizing. It's very mathematical. It's very logical. And I played that from a young age. All, I mean, all my siblings did. Um, so math is a very natural thing. But um, when I got to middle school and I could be on this math team called Math Counts, that's when I started doing, and I didn't know it was called at the time, but I started doing combinatorics because combinatorics is a type of math like if I were to say, okay, you have three pairs of socks and you have four different shirts and you have uh, two pairs of pants, how many different outfits can you make? You know, you're making combinations and you're, it's a counting exercise. Um, and questions like this, you don't need calculus to do them, but you can actually make them more advanced and more sophisticated questions like this, where you don't need, you don't need to know geometry. You don't need to know pre-calculus. These are types of questions that you can ask a middle schooler and they can actually think really hard and deeply about them without having the high school math background. And so these are the kinds of questions that showed up in um, the math counts, math competitions. And I didn't know what it was called at the time, um, but I always enjoyed it and doing and the strategizing of the games. I didn't know, you know, game theory was a thing at the time. So I became really obsessed with, I mean, I just love doing math to this day. If you give me like a math problem to do, I would like nothing better than to sit down and solve it. Um, so it was a maybe a nature thing because <laughs> maybe I was inclined towards it. Um, but there was definitely a lot of nurture towards, towards the math. Um, and the high school courses, the way the curriculum is set up right now in the United States, it gives the impression that calculus is the king of math. Like you do pre-calculus, you do algebra um, and trigonometry, all these courses you take in order to be able to take calculus. And I, I liked calculus, but it wasn't my favorite. I didn't like it like I had liked the combinatorics. And when I got to um, college and I took my first combinatorics class, a discrete math course, it was really obvious to me that, um, that I really loved doing math. I didn't understand 
like this is a line that I've always tried to figure out and never really succeeded. So what's the difference between a hobby and a career? And I think these are really important because a hobby is something that that you enjoy. It gives you satisfaction, but a career is something that is productive. For me, I mean, I want, you know, the dream of course is that your hobby is your career and then you never work a day in your life. You know, this is the expression, but um, it's important to me that my career be productive in a way that doesn't just satisfy me, but that is, um, you know, creating something useful in the world. Um, so I don't think I understood at the time how combinatorics could be a career. <laughs> um, and at the when I was an undergraduate, I considered engineering and and um, physics, which um, was also a lot of fun. Um, but ultimately, I've I've always liked math. <laughs> And when I realized this is, this could go to a, a graduate degree, uh, which could then result in an academic career that would be um, doing discrete math, doing combinatorics full time. I still, I was still hesitant about it because I see a lot of people make a decision early on to become an educator. I think that educate, the education market is oversaturated with people willing to be educators. And I think it's such a beautiful calling. And I think it's such an admirable thing to do with admirable thing to do with your life to become an educator and to serve people in this way. But I think that the barrier to entry is lower than it is for other careers that children don't interact with, right? Children interact with educators and this lowers the bar to entry um, for becoming an educator. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to become an educator just because it was the only career that I'd, you know, heard of <laughs> growing up. Um, so becoming a professor was not clear to me, um, coming out of my undergraduate, uh, coming out of my undergraduate days. And I took a year between college and grad school to really try to be intentional. I still was feeling pretty young um, and I didn't know what to, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I had values about what that work should look like, that it should be productive, that it should be satisfying, that it should be uh, rewarding and that it should be challenging. Um, and that I wanted a career. I didn't want like a day job where I clock out and don't think about it. Um, I do want something that's somewhat consuming, I think. Um, but that year between my undergraduate studies and my graduate studies, uh, I really sort of anything could have happened. I was considering, I was considering, honestly, I was considering the Peace Corps uh, and I started an application for the Peace Corps. I was considering um, applying for graduate school in physics. I was considering applying for graduate school in mathematics. And I was considering corporate jobs. Uh, my parents are both in the corporate world. Um, but 
ultimately I heard back from the math grad schools before. <laughs> I mean, the Peace Corps application, it seems like every time I mailed off a piece of the application, they would mail back a new part of the application. It seems like a long application. So I heard back from math grad schools before I um, even completed the application for the Peace Corps. <laughs> but otherwise, it could have been, you know, across the world. Um, and I didn't, there were no corporate world jobs that I applied for. I think I applied to graduate schools because it's a certain season that you just do that. Um, and then that propelled me to LSU. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse, but at no point did it sort of feel inevitable, but I was sort of maybe following my heart because I just love, <laughs> I loved doing math. And when I went to LSU, um, the combinatorics group there is really strong. And I learned about matroid theory and there's a professor there named James Oxley, who wrote a book called Matroid Theory. He's um, he's just he's a world leader in the field. He wrote the book that everybody uses, and so I studied Matroid Theory with him. Um, and he's the one who pointed out to me that actually being an underrepresented group in academia is productive, just in that sense, like because I was trying to tell him this is morally ambiguous. It's morally ambiguous to do pure math and there are actual mathematical problems that need to be solved. Now humanity has uh, needs and problems that it needs to deal with, but pure math is sort of creating this library of true facts um, and exploring abstract concepts that have applications um, maybe down the road uh, but often don't have immediate applications. So I would say to him, really becoming a, a matroid theorist, this is morally ambiguous. <laughs> it's not clear that this has the utility that um, that balances out. Like, I mean, James Oxley is a genius. <laughs> is doing matroid theory an appropriate use of his intelligence when you know there's other work to do? Um, but when he pointed out to me that you know, women are underrepresented in academia and in STEM in particular. And that, I mean, that's a significant problem to address even in itself. That really resonated with me um, and impacted me. So it wasn't, it wasn't clear that I was destined to become a math professor at any point, um, but I did find my way here, I, I guess, in the end. Well, it's, I am so impressed at the integrity with which you processed the the utility of the work if you will and what it would mean in a bigger sense beyond your own interest that's the you know, you may say you were young I would say you were older like on that that's that's really spectacular and just as a brief segue matroid theory for us non-math jocks a quick one-liner on how we might think of that Matroid theory is a matroid is an object that has a certain way of optimizing value. So something that I try to point to when I'm talking about my research, um, the when I talk about my research with somebody who doesn't have a math background, the thing to do is to keep it short <laughs> and let them know it'll be over soon, you know, and I'll try to just <laughs> um, say something that makes sense. Uh, and 
graph theory is um, really intimately related with matroid theory and graph theory is something that is much more tangible and visible. And that's actually where I started. So um, uh, at some point in Facebook, this is a, I don't even know, people know about this graph that, it, that appeared. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but there was a graph that appeared and a graph, it's not, I'm not thinking of an XY plot. I'm thinking of points, which I call vertices and edges, which are lines between points. Um, so there was this graph on Facebook where each of your friends had a point associated with them. And then there was an edge between two points of those friends were also Facebook friends with each other. Do you remember something like this? Yeah. So that's a graph, I mean, and, and it's a network. And so any sort of questions you can ask about the graph, like, is it connected? Meaning, um, can you get between every pair of people going along these edges? And if between every pair of people, there is some path using these edges then the whole graph is connected. Um, as soon as you see this graph modeling this social network, then this graph can easily model any sort of network, a communication network, a computer network, um, the internet, you can describe it as a graph. And there's lots of questions you can ask about graphs. And when you know certain features of graphs, then you can determine other things that must also be going on with those graphs. Um, and matroids, it's sort of, it's very similar, but it's just abstracted another level up. Advanced social network modeling. Advanced social network modeling. It's so you're so humoring me. Thank you so much, my friend. So I appreciate James Oxley and he planted the seed. Now, did you, given that you were so in your head, realize that, you know, woman in STEM, like this was totally normal to you because your whole family is math jock. So, but when did you realize that, oh, there aren't so many women math jock genius in STEM and I'm kind of unique. Did you, I mean, did you, did that, there was there a point where you're like, wow, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm, I'm a bit rare. Um, it was pretty early that I found myself being sort of one of a few, a small number of females in a male dominated class. I, when I started at Rutgers as an undergraduate, I started there, initially I thought I was going to be an engineer and this was one of those sort of utility calculations like math is um, morally ambiguous. It's a lot of fun, but I'll, I'll do physics. I initially started as a, I mean, as a engineering, I initially started as a thinking of a double major in mechanical engineering and physics. And so I started in the engineering school and I was, in the honors engineering class. And I think there were 40 of us that year, 20 or 40. Um, and there were like two girls. Um, and we had to do group projects sometimes. And so it would be me together with three or four guys. Um, and I'd, I mean, I, I took physics and calculus as a high school student. So I was in classes um, that were STEM, but I don't think I noticed the discrepancy between gender, and maybe it wasn't, maybe there was no discrepancy, um, but in, at Rutgers, there really was. 
And then when I was working with these guys on group projects, it became really clear that gender, this gender discrepancy was important. Um, I would see that any idea that one of the guys had was immediately integrated into the project as if it had come out of the collective, you know? It was almost like anything one of them said was said unanimously. But if I had an idea, it received scrutiny and consideration. Oh, I don't know if that's going to work. Um, and it, then it became a conversation. It wasn't just assumed to be the thing we were going to do. And it, it was frustrating for me, but also um, really interesting that this was happening. And really, I think I probably looked down at at these um, my male colleagues because I thought it was so obvious that my that my solutions were correct. Um, but it, I think that so I was seventeen in um, these engineering courses at Rutgers when I first realized this is, you know, this is <laughs> it's us against them, and there's not very many of us. Wow. Did you, um, did you get that sense from teachers, from professors? No, I don't think I would have. I think it's there though. I have done, at this point, I've done a lot of reading into the leaky pipeline, this idea that, um, so it's <laughs> student, like, in order to become a scientist, you have to become an undergraduate in a STEM field. And in order to become an undergraduate in a STEM field, you probably need some background or interest that comes from your high school or low or um, or middle school, any sort of interest or investment that um, teachers have put in you or uh, interest that you've developed in STEM. And then you go to college and you have to be fostered more um, and at, any one of these levels, um, there's extra barriers. There are extra barriers for women. Um, and then even to go to graduate school and then to get a postdoc, there's these extra barriers. So I've been learning about them, but I think that I was too naive. I think this is one of the benefits of being naive. I think I was too naive to realize that, the, that I was facing extra barriers. I think I was just in optimization mode and and so I think they were probably there. I think that things that would have discouraged, this is maybe an offensive thing to say, I'm gonna say normal people <laughs> um, didn't discourage me. Uh, so, so I think that I was, I sort of made it through the leaky pipeline, but it's just because of sort of being a, Oblivious. So um, I want to, to move on. You found your way to the U.S. Naval Academy, um, and I want to spend some time on this because this is, you know, how I, I first was so in awe with you. And you know, you 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 have might I might describe you as you know you're this mixed race female civilian. You're in a largely white military, male dominated workplace. Um, mm. And you found, you know, cranking it, crushing it. Students love you, just doing amazing stuff, mathing out big time. Um, and then you found yourself um, in the limelight of facing um, gender bias in a big way. And so if you could just fast forward and help our listeners appreciate, you know, the situation and then how you 
gone about it. I just think it's really instructive and a lot of learning for all of us. Um, so the, when I started at the Naval Academy, I was again in a male dominated space, yeah, particularly a white male dominated space. What was new about the space is the presence of the military faculty members. Something I knew going in is that academia and the military both have problems with sexual harassment and and sexual assault. There really are um, problems in both of those uh, institutions. And then it was, so it was really interesting for me to go to the Naval Academy and I wanted to be, uh, you know, a female presence in a male dominated space that had these extra challenges. Um, I didn't, I'm sure I thought that I was impervious to the, these challenges. I thought, I, I thought, okay, students are facing these challenges. There's, you know, sexual predation that happens. Um, there is an undervaluing of female contributions, probably in the classroom. Um, the Naval Academy had had issues in the past with um, how the female midshipmen were treated. Um, and there's, there's female students that I've known since I've joined the Naval Academy who've had problems because of their gender, who, um, for example, one of the midshipmen was having an issue with an abusive roommate. And this was passed off by her company officer as girl drama when actually to be living on the yard and going to school and doing your duties, this is your work environment. This is not something to be discounted. Um, so the introduction of the military into the whole equation of, of navigating male dominated spaces where, I mean, I've encountered a fair number of what I would call just fragile male egos, fragile male, white male egos who were intimidated um, by me and, and didn't, and consequently I would say didn't treat me in the way that they should have. Um, but that was not really common in the Matroid theory community. And I never, been around military faculty. And the military faculty that I met in the math department at the Naval Academy are really, just really wonderful people. Um, but the whole the whole prospect was interesting and different. And I thought I'm there as a resource for the midshipmen. And then I find myself floundering and needing support myself because um, I don't look the way I'm supposed to look. You know, the midshipmen are taught sometimes by military faculty and sometimes by civilian faculty, depending on the class. And if you look at how the students react to military instruction, they eat it up. They love it. They report that military instructors are the best instructors they've ever had. This person made me want to be a, not just a better student, but a better officer, a better person. Um, there's a lot of just idolizing those 
people who are farther along the military track than the midshipmen are. Um, and it didn't bother me that this, so the students um, generally have given me positive reports, um, but that's another place where bias creeps in. So student opinion forms is something that uh, we can we give to the students. They fill out these forms at the end of the semester before they take the final exam. The feedback is all anonymous and is presented to the instructor. Um, and it's also given to department chairs and the promotion and tenure committee. So the feedback from the students is really important, but it comes along with these extra issues. So those military faculty who are so beloved by the students actually have on average lower learning outcomes than the civilian instructors. And it makes sense if you look at um, military faculty who are there on a rotational basis, they may come in for three years. They don't have experience teaching. They have a master's or a PhD. And then after the three, their three-year term, they go on to their next uh, port of call. But civilian instructors have a PhD and they've, they've been at it for more than three years, you know? Yeah. Um, so competing with competing with white male military faculty members is not something I ever thought I would have to do. I thought the learning outcomes speak for themselves and the classroom environment that I'm creating is observed by everybody. Um, so students, I mean, there's a lot of studies about how student opinion forms are going to correlate with expected grade and they also are going to depend on if you're teaching a course that students like. Um, are you teaching, am I teaching math majors or am I teaching students who are required to take this course, but they don't see any application of this course to their major? There's a lot of things that go into it, um, as well as the racial and gender bias that human beings come with, as well as I would say military bias that's there in the Naval Academy. So I was surprised. Um, at how impactful these student opinion forms were to the leadership. And it's really clear, there's just a mountain of evidence that basing tenure and promotion decisions on student opinion forms is, it's just, it's the same thing as discrimination against women and minorities. Um, so I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts about being at the Naval Academy. I have a lot of thoughts about interacting with the military. I love the military faculty that I, I interact with in the math department, but I also can see how they are underachieving in terms of the learning outcomes. Um, and they're idolized by the students. And in some sense, they create competition for me and it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't be at odds with each other, you know? <laughs> we should be able to say, we're all working together. We all, sh I'm gonna share my teaching materials with you. We should work together because those learning outcomes that the military could, are, are underachieving, those could be brought up, right? The civilians and the, the military should be working together, particularly with the rotational faculty. Um, 
But I think that the way that the leadership is sort of forcing us to compete with each other um, sort of drives a wedge between that, uh, which is something I've never experienced before. Um, it, so that's really weird. Um, but the, yeah, so the bias within the military, so women are underpromoted in, in the military as well as in academia generally. Um, and that was something I hadn't thought about when I went. I knew about um, some of these sexual assault issues, but I hadn't thought about the intersection of the underpromotion of women in the military together with the underpromotion of women in academia. Um, and that was something that I learned more about since being denied tenure. And the 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 reason is extremely flimsy. It's um, the the reason that I was given is that I haven't closed my feedback loops, and the idea that I haven't closed my feedback loops is a reason to deny me tenure when that's not a comment that appears on any of my performance reviews, and that's not uh, and you haven't given me any concrete ways to improve that is really baffling. Um, I've just, I found out a few weeks ago that I'm the math department nominee for the um, USNA research award for this year. So it may be the case that I'm going to, I may lose my current contract goes through the end of May and I may lose my job at that point because I haven't promoted and um, I've been denied tenure three times. Um, and some of that denial has to do with a couple of student comments in those student opinion forms, um, which again, it's problematic to use those um, as well as, and I, because what else could the closing your feedback loops have to do with other than student feedback? Um, so I could lose my job this year and I could be <laughs> the winner of the um, USNA research award for this year. So it may be that <laughs> They at the same time say I'm the best researcher at the Naval Academy and they don't have a place for me. Um, it's all really baffling. Yeah, I, I and correct me, but it strikes me as, um, you know, and I've read a bit and we've talked that they don't, it, it just strikes me as they don't want to give you tenure and, and, you know, and, and I don't know if that's like, you know, I think some of the most, you know, uh, professional things we can do is to say, when we made a mistake, let's just own it. And if we look at it objectively, we, we could say we made a mistake and not back our, ourselves into a corner, you know, and mm -hmm. I do, you know, your, just your voice, you're not a hard charging. You're not, you know, I just, you know, you I hear reasons, you know, women, they can't get along. There's you know, all, what have you, but you know, I, I, um, I'm just wondering, you know, like it, it is kind of baffling in a world where we think about all the diversity and people are embracing it and how the academy could look like a hero to have someone who, you know, when and you told me you ran a lot of statistics and numbers on data and such, and you can, you know, you'd be the wrong person to kind of, kind of try to mess around with the numbers part, you know, and I feel like you can, and you've done some parsing out of the data. So it's not like it's, um, not there, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, the institution hasn't shown the kind of support. And so, you know, I, I guess, I guess as you are right now, I mean, what are, what have you tried and what has the administration said and, 
how do you find your support in the community? I mean, it really is, you know, I just want folks listening this is real stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. we want to help people, you know, put themselves out there um, and have the right things happen, you know, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I haven't heard yet as we've talked that there's anything that really is, wow. Oh my God, what a nightmare. No way could she handle tenure. You know, <laughs> just like, what is there, what is the reason? Could someone give us a reason, please? It's, um, it's very baffling. I do. I find it baffling. You find it baffling. Um, I'm, I'm upset about it, but I am an optimizer and I go to the numbers and I learn about in trying to understand what has happened to me. I've learned all about how this happens to a lot of people. And I've actually reached out to other women who have left the Academy. They, I was pointed in that direction by um, some people who are currently at the Academy um, oh, you need to talk to this person. She was denied tenure. She brought a lawsuit and uh, she was successful. Um, so I reached out to several women and ultimately none of them had brought a successful lawsuit. There were these myths about these women who had left. I don't know where these myths came from, but I talked to several women who had traumatic stories about how they had been treated at the Naval Academy after I was denied tenure either the first or, or the first or second time. I don't remember when I um, started connecting with these women, but, uh, and the women who were in the math department, I was starting to become more and more aware of the toxic environment that they were facing. Uh, and this past year, temper, over 10% of our civilian faculty have left the math department. And we had two full professors, two female full professors who have left and we didn't, we only had four female full professors to start with. So now we're down to, to two, it's a, it's a really small number. We have the biggest department um, in the yard. We have about 40 civilian faculty and 20 military faculty. So it's, um, it's, really, it's really upsetting. I am upset, but I also, I've said this to people before, as a screenwriter and a creative writer, some like, at some point it occurred to me, and this, this made me laugh when I thought of it, if this was a rom-com, then, <laughs> then like the head of the, if I was writing a rom-com about this, then my character and um, the superintendent of the school at the end of the movie, they would fall in love. You know, this is like <laughs> all the odds <laughs> are against us. We can't stand each other, I guess. We're really upset with each other. And then these characters fall in love. And that, um, it's ridiculous, but it, I, I really like absurd things like that. So thinking about that every so often uh, makes me, makes me laugh. It's, um, uh, oh, yeah, I appreciate your levity and being able to keep it like, because I think that that's an important thing to stay the course, you know, and to have some sense of hope. I, I want to share, because um, you had let me know that you'd reached out. And I think when we think about this whole say it skillfully and advocating and hearing all voices, reaching out to folks who could be influential mm-hmm. um, to help, you know, I think educate. And, and I think transparency of what's going on, not to judge uh, back anyone in any corners, but we need to be transparent about what is going on. Um, yeah. You know, you had mentioned the data was pretty, pretty compelling year to year, how it was um, biased against the women. We're not trying to get anyone to feel sorry. We're trying to say, Hey, this something's going on here. If there's systemic, systemic issues, Let's be mm-hmm. open to that possibility. 
let's have conversations. I know you mentioned a number of politicians were like, what? I mean, so I, I do, I do want to do a shout out for listeners. You know, if you have folks who have, um, or in the Navy who are very senior, who, um, you know, benefited and who could be voices of influence, you know, we're, we're we want a better world. You know, we're all, mm-hmm. all can be safe, seen and heard. And, you know, I do think this is a takes a village thing. So I do want to encourage a reach out um, to folks. And I, I really applaud you for holding your own, you know, it, and I go, this is an ongoing story, you know, as, as the writer you are, is there anything at this moment, Carolyn, that you would have done dramatically differently? There are things that would have made my life easier for sure. I could have I could have changed my package to look more, to look like what they were looking for. I could have said, student, you know, the students are right. And and I could have made the courses easier. I could have given higher grades. I could have, there are things that my colleagues do, like they offer, some of my colleagues offer office hours at night or on the weekends. And that's a really nice thing to do. But as a as a person with two small kids, I have a completely different work-life balance from a person from the person I was when I was a single postdoc and I could have been anywhere at any time. You know, when I was single, I would fall asleep doing math and I would wake up doing math. I mean I had a full-size bed. I slept on one side and I had my math books and my computers and my papers all down the other side. I really was married to my job. And I don't think that that, it wouldn't do favors to my colleagues for me to try to reach that bar now. I don't wanna compete with my colleagues to win the favor of my students. And I don't want to compete Like, I don't want to lower my expectations in order to please my students. I don't view them as a customer. I view them as a client. They have paid for, well, they haven't paid for an education, but they are receiving an education that the government is paying for. And that's important to me. So the options that I have are limited (laughs) to things I would not do. And I, it has to do with valuing my colleagues and and setting appropriate expectations. Um, I don't wanna to try to jump higher and clear the bar that is being held up too high for people in my group <laughs> to, uh, to reach. So there are things that I would do differently probably with how I present things. I would have, I didn't know very well the, the equal employment opportunity options that I had when I was denied tenure the first time, I didn't understand them as well as I do now. So I would have done some of those things differently. Maybe I would have reached out to get a lawyer sooner sooner than I than I did. Um, and but it's been a lot. But I I told you about um, this special, this Nova special called "Picture a Scientist," which featured the stories of a lot of female females in STEM, uh, female professors who had faced inequity or faced even just abusive treatment as women in male-dominated 
STEM fields. And there was one, uh, there was a biologist at MIT in particular named Nancy Hopkins, who um, she started this report that went on to become the MIT report. And this is this, uh, it's a, a document that's pretty well known and it, it catalogs the inequities at MIT between the resources that female scientists have compared with male scientists. Female scientists were being assigned less lab space, for example, and that was the first thing that um, that Nancy Hopkins really became aware of. And she became aware of it when she didn't have enough lab space to do her experiments. And she saw that her male colleagues had more lab space and she was told that she was wrong. She didn't know what she was talking about. So then she started staying after hours to get on her hands and knees with her tape measure. And she actually, I mean, she's a scientist. <laughs> she can measure things accurately. She measured the inequity in those lab spaces. And this MIT report contains inequities of a variety of different kinds about gender, how, how there's an, an, a gender inequity at MIT among these leading scientists. Um, and I look, and she looks at that report now and she says, you know, what a waste, what a waste that we've spent so much time and energy. We are leading scientists and this is what we did. This is what we had to do in order to be able to even do our work. So we had to put all this in. And I look at the work that I'm doing right now. So the things you asked earlier, what, what have I done? Well, I, I've filed multiple equal employment opportunity complaints, which are still in process. The earliest one was in August uh, 2020 that I started it. And so it's been almost two years now and that has not gone to a hearing yet, but it, it, hopefully it will soon. And I have the option of bringing a civil case, but I have to go through the EEO process before I can bring a civil case. There's some sort of um, legal requirements there. I've reached out to the Board of Visitors, which oversees the Naval Academy in the way that the Board of Trustees oversees other schools. Um, and that is chaired by Congressman Ruppersberger, who's my congressman. And I reached out to him and I've been in touch with his office about what's going on. I've reached out to my senator, who's also on that board, um, Senator Ben Cardin. Uh, I've reached out to uh, lawyers and I've gotten a really good lawyer. Um, that's Jason Ehrenberg. And I have spent a lot of time just doing paperwork because there's the paperwork of, I've also written appeals to the superintendent about my tenure applications being denied. Uh, I've also worked together with other women who were denied tenure. Last year, all the women who applied for tenure were denied tenure. And I worked with them to let them know what their options were because I had been denied the previous year and explored the options at that point. It's not clear, There's, it's not well known what the options are. Um, so I reached out to the women who were denied tenure last year to let them know what their options were. Um, and so I worked with them on writing a joint appeal. There've been a lot of paperwork things to do. It's, I don't know how long it took to compose the MIT report, but at this point I've been doing paperwork for, you know, for two years now. And I've been staying up late all the nights this week working on my appeal for my most recent decision. Um, 
there are a lot of things that I've done. And then I also um, was featured in the Washington Post magazine article. Um, there's a lot of things that I've done, but I also feel the, the sadness of the loss of utility there, the things that I could have done, the math that I could have been working on. Um, so I don't know what I would have done differently because self-preservation would have been really nice, but my values don't align with self-preservation as, as much as they do with being the, you know, be the change that you wanna see. Um, if it was my daughter in the same situation, I don't know if I would encourage her to go the equal employment opportunity route, the EEO route. Would I encourage her to appeal? Because it's clear that filing an appeal, the first time I was denied tenure, the next time when I was applying for tenure, the next year, and I was denied tenure, one of the um, promotion and tenure committee members told me that I had a defensive posture. Um, she didn't like that I was uncollegial with her. And the only setting I'd ever met this woman in was when she was part of a panel explaining to me why I was denied tenure. And yet they had no suggestions for anything I could do differently. Um, and I asked them at the outbrief meeting, the first time I was denied tenure, I asked them, are there any, are there any processes to mitigate any sort of implicit or explicit bias when you're reviewing these tenure packages? And that really was a question that really upset people. Maybe I shouldn't have asked it, but their answer was no, there's nothing. And I thought that's, you know, that's information that's important for me. Uh, that helps me understand what's happening here. Um, maybe I shouldn't have asked it, honestly. Uh, so if it were, so looking at me, <laughs> I see the hit that I'm taking on my career. I would say that my math career has really come to an end at this point. Um, and now I'm working with a group at the University of Maryland in the um, School of Engineering and Materials Science. Um, so I'm willing to do it. I think that, that is important and it needs to be done. I saw my mom when she was an actuary, she's retired now. I saw her bounce off of the glass ceiling multiple times. Um, she, she did that work for me. And you are doing this work for us, all of us. And uh, this is a story that's ongoing. I am beyond inspired by your integrity and your passion and your commitment, Carolyn, you know, we'll be offline and I'm happy to help you any way I can. I don't wish the struggles on you. It's making you better for sure. New doors will open. Um, for listeners, you know, it may seem like, oh, it's impossible. It's not impossible. We can find a way and um, we have to keep the faith and we have to keep hope. Um, so that we can, you know, create more level playing fields that we can help people navigate unleveling level playing fields. So, you know, know that I know it feels like a waste for your math, but you've really, you're really serving. You're in great service, Carolyn. So you should feel great about Thank that. You, um, you know, and um, I, uh, I trust the way you're shining a light on the gaps in our systems are going to help us do the right things to close them. Okay. So your students and peers are very fortunate for you. I'm cheering for you to flourish to continue to have a positive impact on the world. Um, thank you for being more than your fair, fair, fair share uh, part of the solution and um, being true to yourself. Um, thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Molly. Well, my thought for the week 
uh, courtesy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Carolyn's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I am cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 